Hey, everybody, and welcome to Learning from Smart People. I am your host, Rob Oliver, and I appreciate you being with me today. On this episode, you are going to hear from Ricky Quintana. She took a blind leap of faith when she founded Hoon Arts Fair Trade in 2014 because she wanted to give U.S. customers a way to make a difference in the world with their shopping dollars. They were able to do that through empowering the artisans of Tajikistan. And if I messed up on the pronunciation of that, you can straighten me out in a little bit. Uh, since then, she has been working to build the Hoon Arts uh, reputation as the doorway to the unique world of the stands of Central Asia through unique artisan products, travel, and educational experiences that you can't get anywhere else in North America. Ricky, welcome to the show. Thank you, Rob. I'm so glad to be here. All right. And how did I do on my pronunciations? Uh, Tajikistan. Uh, it's close. Okay. Uh, as long as people will know what it is that I'm talking about and not say, <laughs> I, oh, what? okay, so I'll just share with you a really quick story. It, um, a friend of mine tells when he was down in Georgia and uh, he was in Sparta, Georgia, and all of the people down there pronounced it like Sponka. And he's like, it's a really weird pronunciation. He went into the Burger King and said to the guy behind the counter, like, help me out. I'm from up north. How do you pronounce the name of this place? And the guy looked at him with a very straight face and said, Burger King. So uh, <laughs> this is kind of where my life comes from. Uh, let's start. Let's start here. Tell me about your backstory. Kind of like, how did you get interested in this? How did you, what enlightened you to the fact that there are artisans going on in the quote unquote stands of Asia? I, tell me that if you don't mind. Well, it's sort of a convoluted story. Uh, I studied my first language course when I was in eighth grade and it was magical. I studied Spanish and it just opened up this amazing world to me to be able to communicate with people from a different culture, a different background. And I knew by the end of eighth grade, I wanted to study languages in college. And that's what I did. I was a language major. I spent a year in South America. And then I got to be a senior and I had a panic attack about, oh my God, what am I going to do? Uh, what am I, how am I going to pay my bills? Uh, I don't think I want to be a translator. I don't think I want to work for a multinational. I know. I'll go to law school. It'll give me options. Uh, that was that was the message. And uh, that started me on the legal track. I, I had visions of being an international lawyer, not having any clue what that really meant. Uh, but my practice took me in a different direction. So I spent 31 years practicing business law. Uh, but, and it, it was a great profession. I met wonderful people. It allowed me to pad my IRA, which will become important later. And, uh, but I reached a point where it just, I couldn't deal with it anymore. It just didn't feed my heart anymore. So I retired early and at 57, I was 57 when I retired, 
And I started looking for volunteer opportunities that would get me back into the international world. I wanted to connect with people from different cultures. And I found a local organization in Albuquerque that hosts short-term professional delegations from around the world. Okay. What is that? Tell me more about that, please. Well, right now it's, uh, the name is, um, global. Let's see. Uh, when, when I was, a uh, forgive me, I left after, at, before they changed their name and okay. I always get it confused when I was a, a member and a volunteer, it was called the Albuquerque council for international visitors. Okay. Right. Uh, it's, so basically but, what they were doing is they were bringing in business people from around the world to Albuquerque. Is that okay? I was just, that was a concept I'm not familiar with. Thank you. There, there are these community organizations around the country. Um, there's probably a hundred of them in uh, various cities around the country. And they work with large nonprofits that have contracts with the Department of State and uh, the Library of Congress and other organizations like the Fulbright Organization to host delegations coming from around the world, different themes. They can be one person. They can be a large group. It can be a two-day visit. It can be a two-month visit. Um, And I uh, got involved and I took up the role of being a programmer which meant that I got to put together their program, their itinerary, and I got to set up their meetings with their peers in our community. And I loved doing it, and I always escorted them. I didn't have to, but that was so exciting to me to be able to do that and really get to know these people and get to know their passions. And in... I. I did that for a couple of years. 2013, we had our first delegation from Tajikistan. And like most Americans, my first, when I knew they were coming, my first question was Tajikistan. I think I've heard of it. Where might that be on the map? I think it's somewhere over there by Russia. And uh, they were with us for a week. We had one of the delegates actually staying at our home for a week. And... I was just bowled over by the passion of these young professionals. Their theme was youth and civic engagement, had nothing to do with entrepreneurship. But they were so passionate about making a difference at home under circumstances that Americans really have a hard time understanding that I wanted to continue the relationship and see if I could somehow support them. Uh, So a colleague and I did some fundraising and we actually sponsored some small educational projects over the next couple of years. But when 2014 rolled around and they had another delegation coming from Tajikistan, we had a pre-existing relationship at this point. (laughs) And there aren't many places in the U.S. that have a pre-existing relationship with Tajikistan. So uh, they asked our organization if we wanted to host them. And we said, oh, absolutely. 
And that delegation included a young man who worked in ecotourism and handicraft promotion. And that was when I learned through the course of their week that there was literally no one in the U.S. working to build a sustainable market in the U.S. for touchy handicrafts. So at our farewell party, uh, we we were being given handicrafts as gifts. It's it's sort of a stylized farewell party. And when I stood up to give my little farewell speech, I found myself saying, you know what? I'll do it. I'll build the U.S. market for Tajik handicrafts. I have no clue what I'm doing, but I'll figure it out. And thank God I didn't know what I didn't know. (laughs) So that's how I ended up working with a part of the world I'd never visited, working with people who's languages I didn't speak. I had no background, but it was that opportunity to connect on a really meaningful long-term basis that made the difference for me. Okay. So the concept is you are, you are supporting entrepreneurs and artists halfway around the globe. Is that, is that the work that you're doing? It is, but when when I say supporting, uh, I don't want to convey the concept that it's a that I'm saving anyone. Uh, I m- my business is a for profit business, okay. and it is built around the concept of partnership and mutual respect and mutual dignity. And I learn as much from them as they learn from me in the process. Okay, so, and I think that is kind of summed up in the concept of fair trade, right? That's absolutely right. So, talk to me about the concept of fair trade as it relates to international entrepreneurship, please. Well, fair trade is basically built around the concept of uh, giving people and the planet equal billing with profits in the economic system. So I'm a member of the Fair Trade Federation, which requires that you go through a verification process uh, that, it, that is very time consuming uh, to ensure that you are building systems to see that your the artisans you work with uh, receive a, a living wage, a fair wage, that uh, there's no child labor involved, that There is uh, work toward cultural preservation, which is one of the areas dear to my heart, that um, you are using eco-friendly practices to the maximum extent possible. Um, There's there's a World Fair Trade Organization, um, and you can find out more about, sometimes it's defined as nine principles, sometimes 10, but it's built around this overall concept of People, planet, and profits. Okay. And for people who are thinking about, you know, using international sourcing as part of their business. So somebody like me, um, you know, I'm an author and I've considered having my books printed in China or in India or somewhere else. Or, uh, you know, someone who's looking to do something like 
you are where you're working with international artists. Can you talk to me a little bit more about how to how to check your sourcing? Because you know, to me, you look at the price, and you know, here in the United States, pricing is a lot of what determines what it is that you purchase. Um, how do you take the next step to say, okay, price is one thing, and I want to make sure I get a good price, but um, the people and, as you said, the planet are just as important. I want to make sure that I'm being um, socially responsible with the purchases that I'm making. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, I was very fortunate in my journey in that because of the relationship with the young man who visited Albuquerque, I was introduced to his network in Tajikistan in a way that I would never have been able to do just walking in off the street, uh, even with a, a big billfold, uh, because he knew all the master artisans in the country. He was on the board of the Union of Craftsmen of Tajikistan. And I was able to travel and meet the artisans in person. Um, most people who work directly with artisans, and that's what I'm most familiar with, uh, they spend a fair bit of time in country, meeting, observing, communicating with people on the ground. Uh, I think I, I was extreme, extraordinarily fortunate in being able to have an instant relationship with really outstanding artisans and I had the the uh, local on the ground screener who who from time to time has said well we only have one artist in the country who really does a good job at that and I can't let you work with them because they're not an honest person mm. uh, so it it takes time to build relationships it's sort of funny I spent 31 years writing contracts as a lawyer, and I don't have a single contract with my artists because it is all built on relationships. Okay. Uh, let, me, let me go to the flip side of this, because earlier you said there wasn't a real huge market in the U.S. for Tajik handicrafts, okay? Uh, I didn't know that this was that there was such a thing as handicrafts coming out of Tajikistan. And so I'm not going to incorporate that into the plans that I have for decorating my home or anything. So how do you, how do you address that? So you're doing, you're doing right by the people that are your suppliers, the people that are the artists, but how do you increase the awareness about what it is that, um, what it is that they're creating? Well, you've, you've hit probably the single biggest challenge of the business, and that is awareness in the U.S. Uh, it's been a, a slow process. A it's a long game. It's really about education, educating the public. Of course, I have my website. Uh, and one of the things I do on my website includes a lot of educational components uh, so I have a newsletter where I share the culture, share the history. Uh, I've done online, live online experiences with artisans. 
Um, and in terms of the, the physical products from the artists, it's been a, 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 an experience of trial and error. Uh, when I started the products, I just bought products that were typical but high quality for the Tajik market. And Tajikistan is one of those places where there's no such thing as too many colors or colors that don't go together. And I learned pretty quickly that the American aesthetic is a, is a bit different. So uh, it's been an iterative process over time, uh, building awareness, going to trade shows, speaking at organizations. Uh, we have an Airbnb online experience. Uh, it's, it's storytelling at its heart. Uh, and I always say uh, the favorite part of the business for me is show and tell. And any opportunity for show and tell uh, is, is an opportunity to open the doorway. But it is a long game. It is not something that uh, you can expect to generate instant financial success around. Got it. And I would imagine, too, as you're developing relationships with customers, it's a two-sided thing. Number one... Like there's a feel good element of it for the customers to know that they are part of a fair trade deal, that they are um, that they are contributing to artists around the world. But that will only go so far as far as generating sales, I would imagine. You know, because you know, I'm willing to say, yeah, this is good to support them, but to buy something that I'm not going to put on display or. It, um, so is it adapting the American market? Is it adapting the handiworks that come across? Is it finding a, a place where they all fit? Like, how does that work for you? Did, does that make sense as a question? No, no it, it makes perfect sense. And it's, it's a long-term game. Okay. In, uh, you're absolutely right that the the social mission makes people feel good but they've got to want the product first and foremost uh and the i can't tell you how many times people have said over the years i love what you're doing keep going but they walk away without buying anything sure uh so you've got to have products that meet the needs and appeal to your market uh Tajikistan, Central Asia as a whole is, is a, a bit challenging because it's an unfamiliar aesthetic, uh, unfamiliar patterns. The American market is very familiar now after many years with African patterns, with Australian Aboriginal patterns, uh, with Native American patterns, Latin American indigenous patterns. And Central, Central Asia is just unfamiliar. So what we've been doing, because the cultural preservation is so uh, essential, both for me and for the artisans I work with, um, just a, a side note there, during the Soviet period, all three countries I work with were former Soviet republics. And during the Soviet period, the government, the central government, did everything they could to stamp out 
the traditional arts. They literally forced weavers to uh, destroy their weaving equipment. Mm. And when they were discovered weaving in secret, they were literally sent to prison as late as the 1980s. Wow. So preserving these traditional crafts and the, the cultural history and legacy uh, is is really critical to the whole artistic, um, the whole artisan community. So uh, while many fair trade uh, organizations will use a Western, start with a Western designer and use a, a def- uh, an influenced by, inspired by approach to their to their designs or simply go straight to an American design that they know will fit the market. I've been working with my artisans to simplify, but preserve that authenticity. Uh, Use work on the color combinations, fewer colors, (laughs) colors that work well, uh, in the U.S. market. I'll never forget one of my first purchases. Uh, I later called my Halloween pillow. (laughs) It was an orange and black hand-embroidered pillow cover. It was beautiful, and the only time, the only person who would conceivably buy this pillow would be somebody who was decorating for Halloween in the U.S. Uh, So it's been a learning process for me when i started i had no background in design color art marketing uh no no website design no graphic design it i had to learn everything from the ground up so it's been a process for me and for my artisans as as we figure out how to take those authentic elements and put them into products that appeal to the U.S. market. Okay. So I have, I have a, a twofold question. And that is, if someone is hearing your story and is thinking this is something that, that you know, draws their heart, it, that they respond to, and they say, okay, I'm interested in doing something like this. Uh, do you have a suggestion for them as to where to make contact with some of those international uh, the international folks that you're talking about. And do you have any suggestions for them as to what are some of the things that they need to think about as they're starting this journey? Ah, the things I wish I'd known when I started. But honestly, I'm not sure I would have started if I'd realized how steep the learning curve would be. Uh, first of all, you have to figure out why you're doing it your why if if it's all about making money uh chances are it's not going to happen quickly uh if you have uh, a vision of supporting the artisans just you know in a philanthropic sense uh then you got to have a source of cash. You got to be interested in fundraising. Uh, there are many fair trade uh, organizations that do operate on a 
nonprofit status, but they have to spend a lot of their time fundraising too. Uh, there's a whole lot of skills that that you need to uh, run an artisan business in the U.S., a fair trade business. Uh, and you will typically face challenges that a U.S. business will not face. So you, ha- you really have to take a long view of the whole process, figure out what, why you're doing it. And are you willing to commit the, the financial and time and emotional resources required to make it work because it's extraordinarily rarely that someone connects with an artisan group has a viable product for the u.s market and solves all the problems to make it profitable in a short period of time got it and just uh, the other part of that is where where would you suggest people can go to to kind of make the the right connections or what organizations should they be involved in? Uh, is it is it those um, the delegation hosting organizations, or do you have other well, suggestions? I think I think a really great place to start would be the Fair Trade Federation. Uh, the Fair Trade Federation is a U.S. based North American organization. It's the only U.S. Um, organization that focuses on fair trade verification for the artisan handmade sector. Uh, You may have heard of fair trade certified products like fair trade cotton or fair trade coffee. That is a, is a different certification process and it's, it's pretty expensive and it's really focused on commodities rather than handmade individual Uh, artisan products. So the Fair Trade Federation and their website is just fairtradefederation.org has a lot of information about the process, the principles. Uh, It has uh, a membership directory where you can, if there, for example, if there's a, a particular part of the world that you're interested in working in, you can find other companies working in that country or that region to uh, get a sense of what's involved, what the challenges will be. Uh, that that would be the first place I would send people. Wonderful. I, listen, I, Ricky, you've been so giving and sharing of information. It's such an interesting journey that you've been on. If people are looking to uh, find out more about the uh, about your business, um, where can they find you or, you know, what's the best way to connect with you? Uh, the best way is really my website, which is just Hoonarts, H-O-O-N-A-R-T-S dot com. Uh, and I have both products and educational information. It's it's a, a doorway to all the stuff that I love about uh, Central Asia. Wonderful. And I will I will put the link to your website as well as some of your uh, social media stuff in the show notes so that people can get a hold of you as easy as possible. I, listen, this has been so interesting. I, it's time for three questions to establish your humanity. Are you ready for this? I'm ready. Okay. What is your favorite thing 
about the work that you do? My favorite thing is being able to build bridges and have people on both sides of the bridge see that we are really the same, that we are all people facing many of the same challenges and joys and appreciating the differences, but recognizing our common humanity. That's what keeps me going. Excellent. Uh, what is something that will make you laugh? Ah, something that will make me, my, my grandson dancing to Turkish music. Okay. How, how does that come about? Like, how do you find out that your grandson dances to Turkish music? Well, his father is Turkish. Okay. It, he's, uh, he grew up in Turkey. And so his dad listens to Turkish music. And Evren, from a very young age, whenever he would hear the music, he would start dancing. And of course, he's picked up a, a little bit from his dad about the Turkish style of dancing. And he's a very expressive kid. He's now eight. And he's been doing this since he was three or four. And you know, we can entertain the entire family by putting on some music and just telling Evren, go dance for us. Excellent. Well, you let everyone know that he got a shout out on the show. And uh, <laughs> I, I, I'm sure that it is both heartwarming and hilarious all at the same time. Absolutely. All right. So this episode is coming out right before Christmas. And uh, if you were going to make your top five list of Christmas desserts, uh, you can give them to me either in order or you can give them to me in random order. What is the Ricky Quintana list of the five definitive desserts of Christmas? Well, because I grew up in New Mexico, bizcochitos, uh, it, it is the state cookie of New Mexico. It's a very traditional, it's a, it's a shortbread cookie made with anise. Okay. Very traditional. Uh, have to have apple pie. A la mode. Does that count as two or three? <laughs> uh, it's, uh, the apple pie a la mode, just, it gets lumped in as one. <laughs> okay, that's one. Um, just because I love it, not because it has anything to do with Christmas, is carrot cake. Okay, uh, that's three. Uh, let's see. Um, well, it's not, it's sort it's a breakfast dessert. Traditionally, in our household, we have a Christmas breakfast breakfast that always includes an egg casserole and cinnamon rolls fresh made cinnamon rolls you can't beat fresh made cinnamon rolls <laughs> wonderful so um, one more and uh, you're one more yeah. one <laughs> so you, you've had um you've had cake you've had cookie you had pie and you had cinnamon rolls so um this is you know Anywhere you want to go with the next one, it's all up to you. You can even go with what are you drinking with your a dessert if you so desire. Well, I wouldn't have it with my cinnamon roll, but I might have it with my after dinner dessert. And that is peppermint flavored hot cocoa. There you go. Excellent choices. Who can find any fault with that? Uh, Ricky Quintana, thank you so much for being here. I have learned so much 
about fair trade and international entrepreneurship. It's been quite an experience. Thank you for all of my listeners. Thank you for being with us. I wish you a very Merry Christmas, and I will remind you that when you stop learning, you stop living. Have a great day, everybody. 